Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is from Marxist University, a series of discussions held in the fall of 2020 to introduce people to the most fundamental and pressing Marxist ideas. Following the October Revolution of 1917, the Third International was set up as a vehicle of international proletarian revolution. However, the International could not be conjured out of thin air. It had to be built through struggle against many different tendencies and ideas. In this talk, Fightback editor Rob Lyon discusses the history of the Communist International and what we can learn from it today. Um, yes, uh, as Michael mentioned, um, a new edition of the first five years of the Communist International has been uh, has been uh, released by the International Marxist Tendency in well-read books. And uh, yes, this is a collection of Trotsky's writings from the the first four congresses of the of the Communist International. Um, so, following the the October Revolution of 1917, there was a, a revolutionary wave that swept across Europe and eventually most of the world. The Russian Revolution successfully brought the working class to power in Russia, but there were other revolutions or significant revolutionary movements in Finland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Poland, Spain, Italy, Bavaria, eventually the whole of Germany, and there were significant mass movements and strikes in France, Britain, China, and, and so on. The list is actually quite extensive. Um, in Canada, there was what's known as the, as the Labour Revolt of 1919. I think the most uh, famous episode of this revolt was was the Winnipeg General Strike, which spread to over 30 other cities from from Amherst to Nova Scotia to Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. And uh, the the Bolshevik Party, in particular Leon Trotsky, and along with him Lenin, and of course many others, they they played a key role in setting up the Third or, or the Communist International, which was a world revolutionary communist party of the working class and which was established as part of this revolutionary wave that was sweeping the world. And the International wasn't established out of thin air. It didn't simply appear one day. And much like the Bolshevik Party itself, it had to be built through struggle against many different tendencies and many different ideas and through many different events. And so this book collects all of Trotsky's writings and speeches related to those first five years of the Communist International, during which the first four Congresses of of, of the Communist International took place. And so I guess people may be wondering, you know, like, why is this important? Why, why is a book that's collecting Trotsky's writings from 100 years ago from these congresses, uh, why is it important? Why are we discussing it? Well, Trotsky once described the Third International as a, as a school of revolutionary strategy. And I think this is, this is really why the book is important, because it deals with many fundamental questions and problems that the working class movement still faces to this very day. And so this book, and of course the, the actual congresses themselves, are an absolute treasure trove of lessons for workers and communists to this day. Uh, these questions and problems include uh, economic questions, the question of the United Front and the mass organizations of the working class. It deals with the question of how to deal with and approach uh, the question of the reformist organizations, uh, such as the mass social democratic parties and the trade unions. It deals with the national and the colonial questions, the consciousness of the working class and how that changes, how to build the party, and so on and so on. 
And so today, the capitalist system is facing the deepest crisis in its history. And we can see capitalist society coming apart at the seams. Uh, the U.S. presidential election is another example of that. Uh, yet we're faced with the same problem that Trotsky pointed out in 1924, that there is no mass international revolutionary Marxist organization of the working class with a clear understanding of the tasks at hand. And, and this is why this book is not just of historic interest. Rather, we should, we should see it as a, as a guide to action for all workers and youth seeking a revolutionary way out of the present crisis of the capitalist system. And so what was the Third International or the Communist International? I think to sort of understand what it is and where it came from, I think we need to go back a little bit and look at its predecessors, the First and the Second Internationals. Uh, so the first international, which is known as the, the International Working Men's Association, was established in September 1864. And this was really the first serious attempt at building a united international organization of the working class. And the main goal was to unite the advanced leading layers of the working class, uh, primarily in European countries, but also in North America. Uh, it's, I, think, I think it's important that we understand that the first international was not really a Marxist international as such. Uh, it included British utopian socialists and reformist trade unionists. It included the followers of La Salle in Germany. There were French Blanquists and Proudhonists. There was uh, Italian reformists, nationalists and anarchists. There were Russian anarchists. So there were people of all sorts of different political stripes who came together in the, in, in the First International. And Marx and Engels adopted a very flexible approach uh, when, when they were doing this work in the International. And they, and they found ways uh, to work with all these different tendencies and keep the International united, at least at least for a time. And at its height, the first international was established in more than more than 10 countries, but it was still quite weak. And many of the sections, in fact, had to operate in semi-legality or completely underground, in fact. But it did manage to involve tens of thousands and at times hundreds of thousands of workers in, in its various campaigns. And it goes without saying that the, that the ruling class around the world absolutely hated the first international and they attacked it mercilessly, mercilessly in, in the press and they attacked Marx as well all the time. But the international faced a number of problems, and, and one of these problems was the fact that the labor movement, and, and in many countries actually, the working class itself, was still in its infancy. It was still in the process of forming. There weren't really any mass socialist parties, or at least not as we, we know them today, and the trade unions, in fact, in many countries barely existed, and in some countries they didn't really exist at all. Um, the Paris Commune of 1871 also posed a particular problem for the First International and ultimately caused, caused the, the International to splinter. The British trade union leaders were on the right wing of the International and they were generally more conservative than a lot of the other trends. And the tone of the International was becoming more radical at the time of the Paris Commune. And this made the British trade unionists a little bit uncomfortable, actually very uncomfortable. They weren't really revolutionaries and the Paris Commune actually, actually frightened them quite a bit. So when the commune was finally defeated, the, the British trade union trade unionists actually withdrew from the international. And this was kind of one of the first big splits in, 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 in the first international. And in terms of the left wing, I guess kind of opposite to the British trade unionists, you had a, you had a lot of different anarchist tendencies, uh, one of which was around Bakunin. And they kind of thought that the international wasn't radical enough. And so a, a deep division uh, opened between Bakunin and Marx. Now that question is actually a lot more complicated than how I presented it here, but I, I won't have time to go into it into it now. Um, but anyway, the, the commune created a very difficult situation for the international. There was a whole period of capitalist upswing that, that followed the, the defeat of the commune. And, and this, again, helped to pull the international apart. Uh, the international was being attacked on all sides, particularly in the bourgeois press. The counter-revolution in France had paralyzed the workers' movement there, 
and, and the links with the international were broken in, in France. Many workers, communards, and members of the First International, in fact, had to go into exile in London. So the, so the movement was effectively smashed in France. Um, Bakunin launched a whole series of political attacks on Marx, kind of threw the international into disarray. Uh, some of the Italian nationalists also launched some attacks uh, on the commune and the international. And in Germany, Bismarck actually arrested the, the leadership, the German leaders of the international. Um, and so because of this counter-revolutionary wave that followed the, the defeat of the Commune, the International lost its base in, in Germany and France throughout much of Europe, and it, it really just couldn't function in Europe. So eventually there was a decision to move the headquarters to New York, and this caused the, some, some of the remaining French members, the Blanquistes in particular, to walk out of the International. And then this was followed by more splits and more splits, and eventually the whole thing was just falling apart, and it was just descending into, into infighting and factionalism, and it just wasn't functioning anymore. So eventually, the First International was, was dissolved in, in 1876. And the First International was never a mass organization, but the historic task of the First International was to establish the main principles, the program, the strategy, and the tactics of revolutionary Marxism on a world scale. It succeeded in laying the theoretical foundations for a genuine revolutionary international. And, and so in this sense, that we can see the First International as, as an anticipation of the future. What it did do was establish the basis for the creation of mass social democratic parties throughout Europe, uh, which, which took place in, 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 the, uh, in the 1870s and the 1880s after the, after the First International was closed. And in July 1889, the International Socialist Congress met in Paris. And, and this, this Congress launched uh, what became known as the Socialist International or the Second International. Uh, interestingly enough, May Day was also declared an international working class holiday at this Congress. And it also adopted the principles of the First International, which had been established by Marx and Engels uh, just a few decades before. So in a certain sense, the Second International began where the First had left off. But unlike the first, the second international began as a mass international and gathered and organized millions of workers around it. It had mass parties and affiliated trade unions in Germany, France, Britain, Belgium, and so on. Mostly European countries, but, but still. And importantly, the second international, at least officially in words, was a Marxist international. It was, formally speaking, a revolutionary organization committed to socialism and the overthrowing of, of capitalism. But... I guess it was, it was a misfortune, I guess, that the, that the Second International was actually formed during a long period of capitalist upswing. In fact, this was the same upswing uh, that had caused all the problems for the First International. And Marxist organizations don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, the members of, of the organization, the workers, the trade unions, we all live and work in a capitalist society. And this does impact consciousness and, and, and understanding of society. And based on this long capitalist upswing, the leaders and the parties uh, of the Second International began to draw mistaken conclusions about the nature of capitalist society. The period from 1871 to 1914 was, in fact, the second greatest period of capitalist upswing in history, outdone only by the 30-year upswing that followed the Second World War. And it was a classic period of reformism. On the basis of, of this long period of economic growth, it was, it, was, it was actually possible for capitalism to give concessions to the working class, especially the top layer of party and trade union bureaucrats. And although the leadership, such as figures as Karl Kautsky, officially adhered to the idea of socialism, in practice, the social democracy was actually carrying out reformist policies. And this led the leadership and the bureaucracies of these organizations to adapt to capitalist society, and they began to adopt policies of class collaboration. And this eventually led to the great betrayal of the working class in August 1914. Now, 
prior to this, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a kind of a, a constant threat of war as the imperialist powers were fighting for control of markets and colonies. And in response to this, in 1907, and again in 1912, the Second International passed resolutions against this coming war. Everybody knew a war was coming at some point. And they declared that the international would do everything to organize the working class to stop the war and to hasten the overthrow of capitalism. However, in August 1914, when, when, when the question of war credits, the money basically in the budget for the war was proposed in, in the Reichstag in Germany, in, in German parliament, the German Social Democratic uh, Party, in fact, voted for the war credits, as did the French Socialist Party. And so when the chips were down, the social democracy betrayed the working class sided with their own national bourgeoisie, and this directly led to the great slaughter of World War I. So with the exception of the Bolsheviks in Russia, the Serbian party, and as well as some opposition in the United States and eventually in Germany around uh, Karl Liebknecht, the Second International in the main betrayed the principles of socialism and collaborated in the war that resulted in millions of workers fighting and killing each other on the, on the, on the battlefronts of Europe. But this betrayal didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just a sudden thing. It was, in fact, a culmination of a long, drawn-out process that had been taking place over, or pretty much over the course of the entire uh, upswing. During the war, the parties of the Second International really descended into not just reformism, but nationalism and chauvinism uh, as well, beating the war drums. They called for the defense of the fatherland and defended the interests of their own national bourgeoisie against the interests of the international working class. And after the war, the parties of the Second International actively betrayed the revolutionary movement of workers in country after country, notably in Russia, Germany, and, and Italy. Uh, now, in many of the articles in this book, Trotsky actually spends quite a bit of time explaining this degeneration of the Second International and its causes. In fact, in the very first article of the book, Trotsky says uh, the following. He says, the task which had been placed on the order of the day by the Paris Congress, which was the founding Congress of the Second International, uh, has not been realized. The formation of an international is the organization of international revolutionary proletarian action with one center and with one international political orientation had not been achieved. The Second International was merely a weak union of workers' parties which were independent of each other in their activity. And in another article, Trotsky commented that the, uh, you know, that the, the French... The French Socialist Party would say nothing when the German Social Democratic Party would release uh, opportunist articles or make opportunist statements, and vice versa. In fact, the Germans wouldn't say anything when the French would, when the French would say something opportunist. And this was because they didn't want to draw attention to the fact that they were also saying the same thing. So they kind of started to just ignore each other and allow each other to kind of descend into opportunist and class collaborationist politics. <laughs> In the Manifesto of the Communist International to the Workers of the World, uh, which is one of the, the first documents in the book, Trotsky explained the following. Recognizing the world character of their tasks, the advanced workers have, from the very first steps of the organized socialist movement, striven to unify it on an international scale. The beginnings were made in 1864 in London by the First International. The Franco-Prussian War, of which emerged the Germany of the Hohenzollerns, cut the ground from under the First International and at the same time gave impetus to the development of national workers' parties. As far back as 1889, these parties came together in the Congress of Paris and created the organization of the Second International. But the center of gravity of the labor movement during that period remained wholly on national soil, wholly within the framework of national states, upon the foundation of national industry within the sphere of national parliamentarism. 
The decades of reformist organizational activity gave birth to an entire generation of leaders, the majority of whom recognized in words the program of the social, social revolution, but renounced it in deeds, becoming mired in reformism and a docile adaptation to the bourgeois state. The opportunist character of the leading parties of the Second International has been completely disclosed, and it led to the greatest collapse in world history in a moment when the march of historic events demanded revolutionary methods of struggle from the working class parties. If the War of 1870 dealt a blow to the First International, disclosing that there was as yet no fused mass force behind its social revolutionary program, then the War of 1914 killed the Second International, disclosing that the mightiest organizations of the working masses were dominated by parties which had become transformed into auxiliary organs of the bourgeois state. Now, in fact, as events in the German Revolution would prove, the social democracy, after years of focusing on parliamentary politics and intrigue, in fact, it became enmeshed in the bourgeois state and became a key pillar, in fact, in the defense of the ruling class and capitalism itself. So there had already been calls to establish a new international by September of 1914, so a month after the First World War started. But the forces of revolutionary socialism were, were quite isolated, quite small. Uh, the famous Zimmer, Zimmerwald Conference took place in September 1915, so more or less a year after the war started. And this was a gathering, really, of the left wing of the Second International. And Trotsky once remarked that the delegates themselves joked about the fact that half a century after the founding of the First International, it was still possible to seat all the internationalists in four stagecoaches. I think there was about 40 delegates to this conference. But the future Communist International would emerge from the left wing of the Zimmerwald Conference. So after the First World War, there, there was this revolutionary wave that I mentioned, and there was a radicalization of the masses to the left that was taking place almost everywhere. And strong communist revolutionary currents were growing within the working class movement everywhere. And this, this wave of revolutions was reflected in the composition of the first Congress of the Communist or the Third International. A total of 39 groups were invited, with 15 of these groups originating inside the old Second International. And I think it's, it's important that we understand that the Communist International was not some sort of homogenous bloc. It included the whole of the Italian Socialist Party, which included some reformist elements. It included ultra-left elements from Germany, the Netherlands, and Britain, as well as anarcho-syndicalists from France, the UK, and the United States, including uh, representatives from the, from the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. And so this was really an attempt to gather together all the revolutionary currents and tendencies within the international workers' movement, from the left wings of the socialist parties to the revolutionary groups that had stood outside of the Second International. And the Communist International also consciously opened up to groups in, in the colonial countries as well, China, India, and so on. And this was something that the Second International had, had actually neglected, and they focused mainly on the, on the more advanced countries in Europe. So when it was founded, the Communist International, or the Comintern, was made up of mainly small groups within experienced leadership. But by 1921, it had spread more or less across the globe and had gathered hundreds of thousands of members around it. Mass communist parties were formed or in the process of formation in Germany, France, and Italy. And communist, party made, communist parties made important advances in the labor movement in Great Britain, Canada, and elsewhere. I think when the, when the Communist Party of Canada was formed, it, it managed to group together about 90% of the activists in, in the labor movement, which, which is quite, quite impressive. I don't think something like that was done anywhere else, actually. Um, the Communist International and the debates and resolutions, all the theses and the manifestos issued during these first four Congresses dealt with all the key questions ranging from trade union tactics, United Front, the ultra-left tactics, uh, work amongst women, the youth, and so on. 
And I think it's important to highlight that the Communist International, at least for these first four Congresses, was a genuinely democratic organization. I mean, it continued to meet, to discuss, to debate. Uh, votes were taken on decisions. It did all of this even during the Russian Civil War. And for several Congresses during the Russian Civil War, Trotsky himself would travel to Moscow from the front to participate in the discussions, and then he'd go back to the front to continue the fight against the whites, which also shows you how important the Bolsheviks actually considered the, the international to be. Now, there's a firm dividing line between the first four Congresses, which were genuine democratic discussions, uh, proceedings of a Marxist organization, and the last three Congresses, which were exercises in the Stalinist school of falsification. During the first four Congresses, unlike those last three, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the positions of the leadership, the positions of Lenin and Trotsky, for example, would be adopted by the Congress. For example, on the question of the United Front, um, Lenin and Trotsky started out in a minority, and in fact, they were considered the, the right wing of the Congress by many of the delegates. The leadership had to argue its case, and it was only through democratic debate and, and the power of their ideas and arguments that over the course of the Congress, Lenin and Trotsky were able to win over the majority of the delegates to, to their position. And I think this fact alone serves to highlight the democratic nature of the commune during these first four Congresses. Different opinions were expressed openly, and there was no fear of being ostracized, expelled, or jailed, or killed, or anything like that, as, as would become the norm in the later years under the Stalinist regime. But after Lenin's death, and once the bureaucratic degeneration of, of, of the Soviet Union had set in, the Stalinist bureaucracy proceeded to, to basically revise the revolutionary heritage of the first four Congresses of the Comintern. And, and they, they really reverted to, to basically reformist ideas, particularly this, the, the, the Menshevik idea of stages, or, or what we often call the two-stage theory. Now, according to this theory, in the economically backward countries, the working class could not proceed directly to the socialist transformation of society. According to this theory, what was required was first a bourgeois revolution, which would then open up a long period of capitalist development, and only at a much later stage would the conditions emerge for socialist revolution. Now, this runs directly contrary to what to the actual lessons, the actual experience of the Russian Revolution itself, where the working class in a backward country came to power and, and expropriated the capitalists. Now, there's abundant evidence to the fact that, contrary to what the Stalinists would, would have us believe, all the deliberations of the first four Congresses of the Communist International, the speeches, the resolutions, and so on, they contradict everything that was later, later elaborated by Stalin and, and, and his cronies. Lenin and Trotsky understood that socialism in one backward country was not possible, that the only way the Russian Revolution could have survived on a healthy basis would have been by spreading the revolution to more advanced capitalist countries. And this was the main aim of the Com Communist International. Then, at, at, if that had happened, then the technique and the human resources of these countries could have enormously accelerated the economic development of the Soviet Union. And this would have strengthened the position of the working class and laid the conditions that, that would have avoided the very rise of the bureaucracy that was taking place in the Soviet Union. So building the international wasn't just a little bit of fun or some sort of extra add-on thing for, for Lenin and Trotsky to do, but they considered it an essential part of building the new, the new world socialist society. They considered it an urgent task to spread the revolution. In fact, Lenin at one point said that he, you know, the, the workers of Russia would gladly sacrifice the Soviet Union if it meant that the German revolution would succeed. And building this, this international was no utopian dream, but it was actually rooted in the objective situation of, of the period. 
Trotsky himself played a central role in the proceedings of these first four congresses. Um, the first edition of this book, which we've just republished, um, was actually originally published in the Soviet Union in Russian in 1924 by the state publishing house in Moscow. I think the fact that the official publishing house in 1924, when the fight against Trotsky by Stalin was already starting, the fact that it was published there and that they published all of Trotsky's main contributions to the Congresses, uh, I think that's testimony to the fact that, that Trotsky's role was actually recognized openly. The process of generation, the generation was only at its fairly, very early beginnings, and it was only years later that this book and all of Trotsky's other writings would disappear from the Soviet Union. But despite the gigantic efforts of Lenin and Trotsky, to, together with other leaders of the Communist International, the tremendous revolutionary opportunities that existed in one country after another were lost. The Communist parties came into being too late, frankly, and often with a leadership that had, been, had not been tested by time and experience. And looking back, an opportunity to change the world was lost. And, and as a consequence, humanity paid a very heavy price for that failure with the tragic events of the rise of Italian and German fascism and, and the whole thing that led up to the, to the outbreak of the Second World War. The Communist International and these debates and resolutions from the first four Congress, Congresses dealt with all these key questions that I've, that I've already mentioned. And had the Comintern not abandoned all these lessons from these, these first four Congresses, all would not have necessarily been lost. There was a new crisis that erupted in 1929 following the Great Depression of the 1930s. And other great events took place in this period, too, the British General Strike, uh, the Chinese Revolution, events in Germany. Um, and, and in Germany, there were multiple uh, opportunities for successful revolution. And then going into the 1930s, you had mass movements and mass strikes in France. Uh, you had the sit-down strikes in the United States. You had the, the Civil War in Spain. So there were still all sorts of revolutionary opportunities throughout this period. And had the communist parties basically stuck to the principles or applied the lessons of the first four congresses uh, in the in the 20s and the 1930s they still could have successfully led the working class of germany france and spain to power and, and in other countries as well and this would have radically transformed the whole world situation and would have changed world history forever but by the end of the 1920s the, the stalinist faction of, of, of the party and eventually the international uh, after they expelled Trotsky and the left opposition, they gained full control uh, of the Communist International, and they carried a, a complete about-face in its analysis and its slogans, its tactics, and so on. And this is very clear in relation to the question of the United Front, on the question of fascism, on, on the question of, of, of socialist revolution in a backwards country, and so on. And in the real problem was that the Communist International was born and was still a young organization when the bureaucratic degeneration of the Soviet Union began to take place. And I think the question we have to ask is why the leadership of the Communist International under Stalin abandoned all of these lessons. And the answer to that is partially in the caliber of the leadership after Lenin's death in 1924. It's also partially related to the desire of these bureaucrats to isolate and remove and remove Trotsky. As each revolution in other countries was defeated, as capitalism found a temporary restabilization, the prospect of world, world revolution began to recede somewhat. And a process, this process of bureaucratic degeneration unfolded in the Soviet Union, and it eventually destroyed genuine workers' democracy, destroyed the Bolshevik Party, and it destroyed the Communist International. In this process, a privileged bureaucracy consolidated its position at the top of society. 
And it was Stalin who became the living embodiment of that process. <clears throat> Once it had consolidated its position, that bureaucratic caste proceeded to eliminate all the healthy elements within the Bolshevik party, transformed it from a genuine revolutionary party of the working class into a tool for the defense of a bureaucratic privilege. And in order to do this, the Stalinists had to eradicate not only the memory of the party, but physically annihilate the party itself. So Lenin could be removed as a figure, but they... But, Lenin could not be removed as a figure, but they could hide and distort distort his ideas. Kamenev, Zinoviev, Bukharin, and other leaders would eventually be physically eliminated by Stalin, in spite of the fact that they had capitulated to him and confessed to crimes that they'd never committed. But there was one Bolshevik leader who didn't capitulate, and he continued to defend these ideas, and, and that was Trotsky. Um, so once, once these ideas were abandoned, the leadership under Stalin lost all its bearings. As, as political positions were no longer designed to further the revolutionary interests of the world working class, but were designed to protect the interests of the bureaucratic clique that had usurped power in the Soviet Union. The Comintern was transformed from a revolutionary organization fighting for the interests of the world working class into a pawn in the diplomatic maneuvers of the Soviet Union. This was seen in the, in, in the swing towards an opportunist position in Britain and China in the 1920s. And in the Soviet Union, the bureaucracy was following a policy of collaboration with the kulaks, or the, or the rich peasants, and the NEP men, which were basically middlemen that had emerged and become powerful following the opening of, of, of market relations in the countryside. And so, because they were following a, a policy of class collaboration in the Soviet Union, they followed a policy of class collaboration elsewhere, in China, and so on. And this led to the, the defeat of the revolution and the slaughtering of the Communist Party. After this, when the Soviet Union was in danger due to rising capitalist relations uh, in the countryside and facing danger from, from, from the kulaks, from the rich peasants, the Stalinists swung wildly to the to ultra-left positions of the third period in 1928, which declared basically everything except themselves to be fascist, including the social democracy. And this policy prevented the working class of Germany from uniting in the fight against Hitler and allowed the Nazis to come to power in 1933. When this policy failed and the Soviet Union was looking for allies in France, Great Britain, and the United States against a rearming and fascist Germany, the Stalinist bureaucracy passed then over to, to a policy of the Popular Front, an open class collaboration with, with the so-called progressive bourgeoisie. This basically submerged the workers into alliances with bourgeois parties and led directly to the defeat of the Spanish workers in the Spanish Civil War. <clears throat> And, and at this point in, in this process, the Communist International is then transformed from, from you know, a diplomatic pawn in, in the hands of Stalin into an active counter-revolutionary force, holding back the working class from, from taking power at key moments. Now, in terms of sort of why this happened, why Trotsky lost this fight that was taking place in the Soviet Union, I, I think we have to understand that it's not just a fight between individuals, but it's a struggle between living social forces. Stalin was representing the interests of the bureaucracy and the petty bourgeois layers, the, the, the rich peasants and these NEP men I mentioned. And Trotsky was representing the traditions of October and was basing himself on the revolutionary working class and youth. But the Russian Revolution was isolated and the working class was tired and smashed after years of war, revolution and civil war. And so the bureaucracy was able to gain the upper hand. Now, in the Soviet Union, you had this problem of, of the specialists. Uh, most people in Russia at the time of the revolution were illiterate, and it was very difficult for the working class to organize the economy on its own. 
So they came to rely on old czarist bureaucrats and the intelligentsia, people who could read, basically, to help organize the economy. And these specialists demanded a lot of concessions, nicer houses, higher wages, and these concessions continued to grow. And by a certain point in, in, in early 1922, these specialists actually outnumbered workers in the Soviet Communist Party. And then when, when the international revolution appeared to have failed, they basically saw all this talk of international revolution as, as troublesome, as, as a bother. And they really just wanted to settle down and enjoy the privileges of, of their position. And this is where socialism in one country comes from, this, this idea of socialism in one country. And, and many of the communist parties in the Comintern were relatively new with inexperienced leadership and members. And they'd seen the results of Bolshevism and they were inspired by the Russian Revolution, but they hadn't necessarily seen all the years of struggle and they hadn't seen how the Bolshevik party had learned all of its lessons. And they, they didn't, they themselves didn't have uh, years of struggle behind them to prepare the leadership on how to lead the working class to power like the Bolshevik party had. And they didn't necessarily understand the methods of Bolshevism or the methods of Leninism. And the Soviet party and the leadership had enormous prestige because they had had a successful revolution. They had state power. So everybody looked up to them. And, and, and so one by one, the communist parties of, of the international fell victim to these Stalinist intrigues. And many of the communist parties never recovered from, from the third period policies. And, and there was always, it seems, some self-serving bureaucrat looking to improve their or looking to increase their prestige, who was ready to take the reins of these parties and take charge in exchange for total submission to Moscow. So in the end, the Communist International ended up in a swamp of class collaboration, just like the Second International before it. And this was finally confirmed when Stalin simply dissolved it in 1943. And it, it, there wasn't any discussion or any debate. It was simply a directive that was sent out to all the communist parties. It was simply an order. And again, this served the foreign policy and the diplomatic interests of Stalin and the bureaucracy, not the interests of the international working class. Basically, in, 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 the, in, in the talks uh, between the, the allies towards the end of the war, Churchill and Roosevelt were a bit concerned that Stalin had this international communist organization, which could be used to cause some problems in allied countries. So in exchange for military aid, they demanded that he get rid of it. And so he did. He just wrote a letter and shut the thing down. So as mentioned, when Hitler came to power in 1933, with no real opposition from the working class or the Communist Party, uh, you know, like Hitler even boasted that he came to power and not even a window pane was broken. And when the, when the Nazis came to power, the Communist Party of Germany actually said, well, the fascists have won, but next time it'll be our turn. Well, there was no next time. The workers' movement was utterly smashed in Nazi Germany, and many of the first victims were precisely the leaders of the communist and the socialist parties. Now, Trotsky considered this a, this a betrayal by the communist international on the order of the betrayal of the second international at the start of the First World War. Comintern policies led directly to the rise of Hitler in Germany, and afterwards there was no effort to learn the lessons of this defeat. So Trotsky began to work towards the establishment of a new fourth international. But unfortunately, the groups around Trotsky were quite small. They were quite isolated. Many of these groups had some confusions. They were disoriented with all the events that were taking place. And many of them made some sectarian mistakes. And overall, this kind of reflected the isolation of the Trotskyists from the mass movement. They were kind of stuck between these mighty forces of reformism, Stalinism, and fascism, and all the great events that were taking place. But in the end, the Fourth International was launched in 1938 on the basis of a definite perspective of a revolutionary upswing following World War II. Unfortunately, this perspective was falsified by history. 
after the war, the revolutionary wave that Trotsky expected, it, it did take place. But Stalinism and reformism were enormously strengthened after the war, not, not weakened as he expected. And then, of course, the, the assassination of Trotsky by, by a Stalinist agent in 1940 was, was a fatal blow to the fourth and its leadership. And it, it basically never recovered from this. The other leaders of the fourth proved unequal to the tasks posed by history. And they ended up really just repeating the words of Trotsky verbatim without understanding the method behind what he was saying. And in the end, they ended up not capable of understanding the new situation that arose after 1945. As a result, they made serious errors, which led to the shipwreck of the fourth in the 1940s, 1950s, and, and really the breaking up and the splintering of, of the Trotskyist movement, you know, the, the source of all the jokes about how Trotskyists like to split and all that kind of stuff. The root of all of that is in this period after, after the, the Second World War in, in, in the late 1940s. And really today, the Fourth International doesn't really exist as an organization. There are actually quite a few groups that try to speak in its name or claim its heritage. But really, to one, to one way or another, all these groups have, have abandoned Marxism. Um, some have openly abandoned Marxism, but others have really just descended into being virulent and irritating sex. During the long post-war upswing from the mid-1940s until the mid-1970s, the forces of Marxism were isolated even further, and reformism and Stalinism were strengthened. And the situation is such that today, some 150 years after the founding of the First International, the revolutionary movement has been thrown way, way back, and the forces of genuine Marxism have been reduced to a tiny minority in the labor movement. But there's an essential contradiction here. In terms of the working class, it's actually stronger than ever. It's bigger and more powerful than any time in history. Yet the revolutionary wing of the workers' movement has been thrown way, way back, almost to a situation similar to the very beginnings of the workers' movement, or, or isolated, like the Zimmerwald lefts after the first, uh, after, at the start of uh, World War I. Decades of economic growth in the advanced capitalist countries have given rise to an unprecedented degeneration of the mass organizations of the working class. The Second International actually still exists to this day, but the Social Democrats of today are really left liberals, or not even really left liberals, just liberals. And they don't frankly hold a candle to the Social Democrats of the past, who at least paid lip service to socialism. The task we are com confronted with is roughly analogous to that, to that that Marx and Engels faced at the time of the founding of the First International. For decades, Marx and Engels were forced to, to, to swim against the stream, which is basically what we've been doing for decades as well. But the global economic crisis from, a couple, from 10 years ago and the one that we're going through right now, these are marking key turning points in the world situation. And the strategists of capital, the ruling class, they can't see any way out of it. The crisis of capitalism is provoking a reaction on the part of the workers and the youth, and we've seen mass movements erupt in country after country, some with insurrectionary implications, including even in the United States. Now it seems we're actually swimming with the stream. People are increasingly interested in socialism and the ideas of Marxism, yet no genuine mass revolutionary international exists at the present time. The central problem can be simply stated. It's a problem of leadership. In 1938, Leon Trotsky stated that the crisis of humanity can be reduced to the crisis of the proletarian leadership. This completely sums up the present situation today as well. And it's a bit of an irony of history that the leaders of the mass workers' parties are, are kind of clinging on to this decrepit capitalist system and the market system, even when it's collapsing around their ears. The workers and youth have done everything in their power to change society, but they can find no organized expression for their efforts. At every step, they find their path blocked by the old bureaucratic organizations and leaderships that have long ago abandoned any pretense to stand for socialism. 
So we have to understand that the international will not be built merely by proclaiming it. We can't just say we've built the revolutionary international, come join us. It will be built on the basis of events, just like the communist international was built on the basis of, of, of the events in the stormy period of 1914 to 1920. Great events are necessary to educate the masses in the necessity of a revolutionary transformation of society. But along with events, we also need to create an organization with clear ideas and solid roots in the masses on a world scale. Our task is to participate in the class struggle shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the class, to go through all the experiences at every juncture and to explain the need for the socialist transformation of society. It's only by winning first the most active and conscious elements of the proletarian vanguard and the youth that it will be possible to reach the masses who still remain under, under the influence of, of various reformist organizations. Lenin, Lenin, Lenin always said, patiently explain, especially when the, when the Bolsheviks were in a minority. And this is something that we should really take to heart and follow. What we need is a revolutionary international that is capable of giving an organized expression and political guidance to this struggle against capitalism. From, from, from small beginnings, actually a couple of different small beginnings over the decades, the IMT, our organization, the International Marxist Tendency, we're now working in, I think, something like 40 countries, you know, Brazil, the United States, Canada, Greece, Venezuela, Mexico, Britain, France, Pakistan. And we've, we've achieved quite a bit, actually, especially in the last couple of years, even. But it's only the beginning. In a certain sense, history's come full circle. After the long recovery, uh, the big upswing after the Second World War, the capitalist system is today facing the deepest crisis it has ever faced. And this crisis is preparing revolutionary con um, convulsions on a scale never before seen in history, such as what we just saw in the United States this summer. The task facing us is still the same as, as, as what was said in, in the manifesto of the first Congress of the Communist International. The building of a force can, that can end the capitalist system once and for all. The IMT's political and organizational principles, our ideas, our traditions, are those of Marx and Engels in the First International, of Lenin and the Bolshevik Party, the first four Congresses of the Third International, the ideas and traditions established by Trotsky and the International Left Opposition, and the founding Congress of the Fourth International, as well as the ideas that, that we've developed over the last 70 years. This is what we claim as our heritage. And on that basis, we appeal to every work, worker, every student, all the youth who agree with the same, to help us achieve our final goal, the victory of international socialism. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.